Okay, and welcome to our second episode of the Bump, Birth and Beyond podcast, proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts Education and hosted by me, Dr. Joseph Scroy. Um, today on our episode, we're joined by Carly Underwood, uh, and Carly is fortunate enough to have little baby Hudson, who was born uh, not too long ago. We have a little bit of a chat about not only her pregnancy journey, but also how she became pregnant and how the whole birthing experience happened. So welcome, Carly. Thank you for having me. That's all right. It's a nice day. Nice way to start the new year. That's it. Having a little bit of a chat. So tell us a little bit about Hudson. How old is he? Hudson will be eight months old in a week. Oh, magnificent. Yeah. You're already thinking about number two? Yes. <laughs> Ready to go again. <laughs> so it's interesting. I think as an obstetrician, we always say to people, we'll see you in 18 months. It's yeah. primed perfectly because <laughs> once you're about that nine-month mark, I think most people are thinking about having another bubba. Itchy feet. Ready to go again. All right. So we'll, I thought we'd just chat a little bit about you know, your desire to become pregnant, how long it took you to become pregnant and, uh, you know, was there any troubles, any difficulties or was it all pretty seamless for you? Uh, yes. Well, our journey to become pregnant was a journey. Um, we, I guess we tried for about a year-ish yep. um, and started to seek out some help with fertility. We were kind of exploring um, a specialist to go to and, and options. Um, and then we spontaneously fell pregnant when we were about to check in with someone. So, <laughs> so yeah. it's often the case, I think. A lot of people, I do IVF as well, and a lot mm. of people sort of are gearing up themselves to see if it. I think the best mm. thing about being a fertility specialist is that person that rings up and says, actually, we're pregnant now because then I can look after them when they're, when they're pregnant. But, um, you know, they're, they're, it's almost like you take the brakes off and you're relaxed and you go, oh, wow, awesome, now we're pregnant. Yeah. That's fantastic. But you're right and you were right to do so after about six to 12 months of trying. If you guys weren't able to conceive, then seeking the advice of fertility specialists is pretty important. But um, but I think, you know, fortunately for you guys, you didn't need to go down that path and got pregnant naturally and spontaneously, so that's awesome. How How... How did you find out? Because, of course, you were sort of, were you sitting there every month <laughs> yes. with a pee on the stick? <laughs> yes. I'd love to own shares in Clear oh, Blue. <laughs> it was, yes, I would too. Um, <laughs> I think uh, we, I found it actually the day before my period was due because I was checking constantly, like, you know, just yeah. constantly weighing on sticks and I didn't believe it. So I did, uh, I didn't tell anyone. I kind of knew and I didn't tell anyone, my husband or anything. And I just sat on it because it was the faintest, faintest line. And then the next morning I did another test and it was a little bit darker and then another one in the afternoon. And I've got the, a collection of them at home in a little box, but uh, it, yeah, and then I just... Have you still got, like, how many did you do yeah, in total? Yeah, about eight. About eight. <laughs> yeah. And, and you can see the line yeah, progressively, progressively darker. Dark. And I've written Love a timestamp on each one that's just mental. <laughs> do you reckon you'll do that for the second one? No. Oh, no. Nah, no. Won't be as well. It's always interesting, the first one I think people are really invested in that they want, and particularly because, you know, after such a long period of time for you guys, it would have been quite nice to have seen that positive pregnancy test. So tell us how you told your partner or your husband. Uh, so my husband is, he's kind of like a lumberjack looking fella with yeah. a big beard and, um, he's like a bodybuilder by trade and personal trainer. So I got a little flannelette shirt and, um, <laughs> put it on his pillow with the positive pregnancy stick and that's about it. Nothing too crazy for him, but yeah, it was just a beautiful way to, you know, show him. Show him. Yeah. Does he wear, does he wear He wears flannels all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of when I was back at uni in the 90s wearing oh, yeah. flannels. We used to wear flannels and jeans. It was like yeah. that was the fashion for a university student back <laughs> in those days. So you get pregnant and, uh, you know, there's a bit of joy and expectation there. 
how, I mean, I think a lot of people want to know, how, how did you, that, a lot of people sort of tell me how, you know, how did you, well, ask me as an obstetrician, how do you choose an obstetrician? So how did you guys choose an obstetrician? Like did you ask friends, family members? Uh, I, I did a lot of Googling yeah. uh, and we, we went private. Yeah. Um, I, I, no reason in particular other than I just wanted some consistent care just yeah. with the same, same ob. So I was Googling and Googling and, uh, yeah, just found a doctor and read some Google reviews, which is awful because, you know, they're a bit of whatever. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, had an appointment and sat down, had a, you know, a viability scan yep. um, at about seven weeks. And, yeah, I was happy and comfortable and I, I being a, I'm a nurse in real life and not maternity leave life, yeah. <laughs> um, and I just wanted um, I guess no fluff. I just yeah. wanted to hear it straight and any issues or things that come up during the pregnancy. I just wanted to have it very clear and no fluff. Um, so I found an obstetrician who was very much like that yeah. and quite straight. So, yeah. I Played a straight bad. That's, that's important. It. What type of nursing do you do? Uh, I trained at the Royal Melbourne and yeah. now I'm doing aged care. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's had a few challenges as well, I'm sure. Yeah, lots, lots Probably and prepared lots. you nicely for motherhood. Yes. <laughs> yes. Actually, I, to, just to segue a little bit, I remember when I was a medical registrar and I was working at Caulfield Hospital where they do oh, a bit yeah. of aged care yes. and I always found that the best way to be able to treat the patients or look after the patients was to sing them songs, particularly those yeah. poor patients that have a bit of dementia. Yeah. So and I'm sure you're not like one of these <laughs> nurses. But anyway, so... As I'm doing a drip on this lovely old lady and I'm seeing her in New York, New York, and mm. she's joining in with me and we're getting the drip in and everything's fine, I walked out and the nurse said to me, you know what, we're going to have to do that all the time now. <laughs> and I was like, are you for real? Like that was the best way of being able to manage that whole situation. So what if you had to do that all the time? It would be awesome. Yeah, highlight of her day. Yeah, highlight <laughs> of her day, exactly. But I think, uh, you know, sometimes some people get jaded. So the pregnancy then itself, do the six-week the six scans, you know, this Big, and a lot of people come in quite anxious for that first six-week scan. Unfortunately, you obviously seen a heartbeat. Were there any hiccups at all in that first trimester? Uh, I well, I am, I know that I have a genetic. Uh, it's not really anything. It's called the MTHFR gene, and yeah. I was positive for that. So, as a precaution, I was on Clexane for the right. first trimester. Um, so we'll talk about the MTHFR gene. Every yeah. obstetrician's got their own. Yeah. So this, Homozygous, so I've got two copies of the same gene. So the MTHFR gene is what what metabolises a a chemical in our body called homocysteine. If your levels of homocysteine are quite high, in that scenario there is an increased risk of thromboembolic disease. However, a large Cochrane review that came out probably about 10 years ago now, so it's a fair while ago, showed that there was no evidence for any adverse outcomes in pregnancy. So... Whilst as obstetricians we're all very cautious and we're very cautious because we want our babies and we want our pregnancies to go quite healthy, there is a lot of people get anxious about the MTHFR gene. And about 40% of the people, population will actually have it. And homozygotes, well, I can't remember offhand, but I reckon about 5% of people will be homozygote for us. So certainly an increased chance of having clots in the lungs and clots in the legs. In the absence of having any major clots in the lungs and clots in the legs for yourself, 
you know, having clexating pregnancy is going to prevent having um, having uh, a cotton lung and clot in the leg from your perspective, but it's not going to impact heavily on the pregnancy. A lot of people get worried that perhaps there's going to be an increased chance of a miscarry or preterm birth or preeclampsia, so having high blood pressure in pregnancy. But in actual fact, the MTHFR gene doesn't necessarily predispose you to that. And the other thing that people often comment about the MTHFR gene is also having to be on higher doses of folate. And most of the evidence now suggests that you actually just need to take the regular supplementation of of folate, which we recommend as being 400 micrograms. And, of course, in some of the very standard pregnancy multivitamins that are on the market, they normally contain anywhere up to around about 800 micrograms, so just short of a milligram. But it's important. I think a lot of people... Uh, get tested for the MTHFR gene, so it's nice to know what you may or may not need to do mm. with respect to that. So you're on Clexone for the pregnancy and all Just the first that. trimester. Just the first trimester. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then did you stay on aspirin yes. after that? Yeah, Perfect. aspirin. Yeah, and again, aspirin's a nice way of being able to prevent clots. Or, and, uh, and also there's some evidence that suggests that aspirin also decreases the risk of preeclampsia, so late on, uh, early onset preeclampsia. And if you take about 150 milligrams at night, um, and I wouldn't recommend anyone necessarily taking that unless they speak to their obstetrician or their midwife, but you can ask them whether it's some of, of value for you. All right, so you want Clexane, then we'll continue with aspirin, and we presumably continued that until around 36 weeks yeah, and then stopped it. Yeah. And the reason for stopping it, of course, is to mitigate against the risk of bleeding, which can happen later on, of course, when you're heading into childbirth. So the first trimester goes by. Mm-hmm. You do Down syndrome screening, I presume? Yeah, we did. We did. And did you do the non-invasive perinatal screen? Yes, we did. Yep. And then you find out it's a boy or a girl? Uh, we, yeah, we didn't. We kept it secret and gave an envelope to my brother. Oh, right. Okay. Yes, for the traditional gender reveal. Yeah, so, how <laughs> we, so I've seen a fair few funny gender reveals on Instagram, but what did you guys do? So my brother organised it and organised some big poppers with uh smoke and streamers and all this sort of stuff to yeah. pop out of it. So we had a, a barbecue at our house and yep. he organised a few people to come over and, uh, yeah, he, he just did a big video of himself being like a gender reveal wizard and then <laughs> set up a big thing in the backyard so everyone stood behind us and popped these poppers and blue smoke came out of it. Wow. And yeah, that's how we found out what that's gender nice. was. It was lovely. Did you uh, often, I mean, not everyone, but... Certainly some people have a sort of an expectation of what gender they want. Well, I I kind of felt I was having a boy yeah. the whole time. I yeah. just, I don't know, I had an inkling. I feel like I'm going to always be a mum of boys. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You've got to tell your husband to wear pink socks. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> pink, pink socks, way to go. Well, he, he was hoping for a girl. I think now he's happy with boys, uh, uh, you know, forever boys if yeah. we have more. Um, but, yeah. You were happy either Happy way. either way. Either way. Just wanted a baby. <laughs> Um, and then, of course, heading into the end of that sort of that first trimester, ultrasound scan, and of course now most people are getting digital images, which they can email across the world. Did you yeah. did you send it off to anyone special? No, no one, no one uh, that special. Just family, yeah. you know. We've got family in country Victoria, so yeah. it's nice to be able to share those images. Anyone yeah. affected by the bushfires at the moment? No, thank goodness. Yeah. yeah. Horrific. Awful yeah, stuff. Um, all right, so we head into our second trimester and everything's still going absolutely swimmingly. Yes. How was work going with, uh, uh, with uh... Nursing was hard, so I was in a kind of a clinical management role, um, long hours, long days on my feet. Um, yeah. But I, I was 
fortunate in that I, I had a lot of energy, I guess, the whole time through. I didn't have any morning sickness. I'm one of those people that I think uh, some women would get angry at. Just yeah. it was the most beautiful pregnancy and yeah. I loved it and was thriving and went to the gym most days still and, yeah, not, yeah, it was great. Were you doing burpee push-ups? No, just lots of walking just and walking. lightweight stuff. Um, yeah, I just felt better going to the gym and, yeah. And it's, nice. I think the other thing to make mention is that, you know, not only does exercise improve your cardiovascular health, which is important in terms of childbirth, because I always say to, I say to people when, women when they're going through childbirth, it's like money, running a marathon. Mm, and yes. if you're able to, you know, be relatively active throughout your, your pregnancy, then when mm. you're getting to that pointy end of, of course, childbirth, if you've got the stamina because you've built up reserves over the course of your pregnancy, you're going to make it a hell of a lot easier for yourself in, in childbirth. And the other thing that's really important, probably you've sort of alluded to already, you know, if you've got high demands, particularly at work or at home, Exercise is wonderful for your mental health as well, mm, yeah. uh, the release of endorphins and just making yourself feel relatively happy um, is going to be the reason why you felt so good in your pregnancy, presumably. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. It'll happen again and be the same. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. fingers yeah. crossed. Um, so we're into the second trimester. You're sailing through. You're the envy of every other woman <laughs> who you know is pregnant around the same age, mm. same gestation as you. Um and uh, then the 20-week scan happens. Everything's fine with that? Uh, so the 20-week scan for me showed uh, low-lying placenta. Yep. Uh, the, the main precaution I was going to have was to um, have another scan at, I think, the 32-week yep. mark um, and then, you know, if it hadn't moved uh, up. So I had an anterior placenta and it was low-lying. So, yeah, just to keep a close eye on that. Um, I think uh, there was a... A few weeks where I needed to, you know, abstain from intercourse and uh, a few other things just until um, uh, I met with my ob because I had the scan and, and the, the radiographer or the radiologist was, um, you know, explaining what she was seeing and then I was having an appointment with my obstetrician. I couldn't get in that day, so right. a few days later. Um, so she, she told me some precautions and then when I met with the obstetrician, you know, he explained what it was and um, and what issues could come of it, but he was quite confident that because of the position of my placenta, it would move out of the yeah. way in time. So just to explain to people, so low-lying placenta is where the placenta is very close to the cervix. And I, the way I like to explain it is you imagine your uterus is like a balloon and the neck of the balloon is the cervix. And the placenta is where it's, it's obviously where the baby's getting all its oxygen from and nutrients from throughout the pregnancy. If the placenta lies right near the neck of the balloon and within two centimetres of the neck of the balloon, that's what we call a low-lying placenta. If beyond sort of 32 weeks it's still low-lying, we then call it a placenta previa in, in technical terms. A lot of people will have a low-lying placenta in pregnancy early on in their pregnancy in the 20-week mark and, of course, that we always recommend a repeat ultrasound scan at 32 weeks. And invariably, the vast majority will move away to be more than two centimetres from the opening of the womb, so it's like the, the neck of the balloon. So if you imagine you've got a balloon and you put a little black dot right near the neck of the balloon where you blow it up, and you would then imagine yourself blowing up that balloon, as the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger, Relative to where you're blowing up, that black dot will move further and further away because as the uterus starts to stretch, it becomes bigger. So does the balloon become bigger. 
And so invariably, it's not that the actual placenta moves, it's more that the uterus starts to get larger and drag that that placenta away from the, the cervix. So when we get to do the 32-week scan, if we find that that placenta is more than two centimetres away from the cervix, it's very then safe to have a vaginal birth. Of course, it's, if it's within two centimetres, and sometimes you get it at sort of 18 millimetres, so 1.8 centimetres, often I just say to my patients, hey, listen, let's repeat a scan again in another three or four weeks, and invariably it will have moved. And so it's really only if it's you know, abutting that cervix that you need to have a cesarean section because the risk is, of course, if the cervix opens, then the first thing that you see if the cervix opens, imagine yourself at the bottom of a balloon and you're opening the balloon up and you see a placenta there, well, that's like the cervix dilating and it can bleed. So that's why we'd re- recommend a seizure in that regard. But, yeah, that's the right thing to do. So presumably 32 weeks, everything looked good. Yeah, yep, perfect. Out of the way. No dramas, yep, yeah. out of the way. Thank Perfect. goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. I mean, it is. It's, I mean, particularly for someone you know, such as yourself, young and wanting to have a you know, fair few babies having a vaginal birth as opposed to a cesarean section, of course, is going to be quite good for you. So the rest of the pregnancy is quite good, no major issues. No, uneventful. Totally uneventful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we get to the 32-week scan and fortunately they told you that baby's still looking good, healthy, and that the placenta's now moved away. Yes. Well, there's any, was there anything going on particularly in the third trimester that you, you know, you were concerned about as you were leading up to childbirth? Um, anything that sort of came out of the birthing classes that were, mm-hmm. oh, my God, what, what's going to happen there? I think, I guess, it's just the unknown. I, I just spent, I had a lot of insomnia, I guess, towards the end of the pregnancy for about the last four weeks. Yeah. And I just used to Google and Google all night long about what would labour feel like, what would, you know, yeah. just ridiculous stuff. And it's just because it's the unknown and I didn't know what to expect and I didn't really have any other health concerns, but it was more just that curiosity of what what would my water's breaking feel like or what would labour, how will I know when labour yeah. started and those kinds of things. But, yeah. And, it, and, you know, and I, said, I think I said this to Nikki as well in the first episode that, you know, traditionally... When before you went for for your first pregnancy and childbirth, you would have seen in this is like hundreds of two hundred years ago, you would have seen multiple amount of women having their babies. You would have seen your auntie, you would have seen possibly your mother, you would have seen your cousin, you would have seen your sisters, and so you would have sat, you'd have accumulated this knowledge in your own mind as to what childbirth's all about and what what even having a baby's all about, and then looking after a baby. But of course now. You know, with modern modern ways as it is now, we tend not to see a childbirth unless, number one, it's on TV, yeah. or number two, we hear about it in very sensational terms on the internet uh, before we go through our own labour. And yeah. no one really, and this is part of the reason for doing this podcast series because no one actually talks to you about how nice birth is. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, as an obstetrician and a caregiver for women in labour, how rewarding our jobs are to, to you know, help you guys or bring new life into the world. I mean, it's the most fantastic experience. And you know, we, I'm sure your obstetrician and countless of midwives and doctors that do this on a regular basis feel humbled by the fact that we get to do this uh, and, and be privileged enough to be involved in that whole process. But you're right, it's difficult when you're Googling because yeah. what are some of the crazy things that you found out when oh, you were Googling? Just uh, it would always come up with things like having... Um, uh, induction and then risks of C-section and then a risk of, you know, just just crazy stuff, uh, you know, 
things yeah, that will just, be up. Things that, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people are, are scared of an induction of labour. There was a trial that came out about a year and a half ago called the ARRIVE trial. Did you read about that one? Uh, yeah, I've read into the ARRIVE trial. Yeah, yeah. yeah, which looked at women who were electively induced at, at 39 weeks as opposed to then being just allowed to continue the pregnancy and be induced what we would technically speak at 41 weeks and three days. And look, it's very difficult. I find it very difficult to draw conclusions in terms of trying to say evidence for an induction of labour. But what this particular study showed was that if you induced women at 39 weeks, particularly first-time mothers, there was actually a decrease in the cesarean section rate. So for those people who are a little bit anxious and or worried about the prospect of being induced because they fear that they might actually end up having a cesarean section, that can be dispelled. I think it's really important that some people, if you have to be induced, you realise that there's a reason why the doctor or the midwife is suggesting it and that it's not going to necessarily increase your chances of cesarean section just because you're being induced. Mm. Whereas historically we used to, you know, intuitively people go, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm going to get induced and that's going to lead to X, Y and Z and yeah. eventually it'll be a Caesar. Yeah. And you see a lot of that on the internet. Yeah. But you can, I think a lot of people now can be reassured that that's not the case. And intuitively that makes sense for several reasons. Number one, because I think the placenta isn't, doesn't age as much, so that means the baby's got more reserve in terms of um, in terms of capacity to uh, go through labour because much as it's a marathon for you to go through labour, it's also a marathon for Bubba. And then the other thing that's also important is that baby tends not to be as big because the baby continues to grow about 25, 30 grams a day. So if at 39 weeks there's several hundreds of grams less than what they would be at 40 or 41, 41 weeks, then, you know, obviously it makes it a bit easier for the bubba to, to be pushed out. So, yeah, I think not that I'm suggesting everyone should be induced at 39 weeks, although there are some doctors out there who do think that, but that you shouldn't be fearful if, if you're being suggested that you should have an induction. So mm. that was one weird and crazy thing. What else are the things? Uh, I, I was nervous about, I've seen, you know, on YouTube you see these videos of women giving birth in their cars and just, oh, yeah. <laughs> just you, know, you know, their water breaking and within 10 minutes their baby's coming out. Yeah. That, was a, that was a fear for me. So I, yeah. just, you know, seeing that kind of stuff and... Yeah. That's, I mean, look, it's, it is, it's particularly for a first-time mum, it's very rare that you would find yourself in a position where you go into labour and within several minutes have a, it, it can happen, of course. Uh, I know of my own patients where they've come in. I remember there was a, a lady who I think she was, she was at 38 or 39 weeks and she'd rung up my secretary and said, look, I'm just getting a few cramps and had a little bit of a show, did, what do you think I should do? And my secretary said to me, Joe, what do you think? And I said, look, just tell her to come in because it's always nice to double check. And she really had very light tightenings. I mean, they were not, compared to other women where you can feel the pain, they can feel the pain. She was having what was very tolerable tightenings and she arrived at nine centimetres. Wow. So she had to come in. <laughs> my goodness, in the car. <laughs> Possibly at work because she was at work. She was thinking, oh, I'll be right, nothing to worry about. But fortunately she rang in and we, we got her to come in. But it's very rare, isn't it? Because yeah. most women, I think that the stages of labour, we talk about the stages of labour being, you know, the first, second and third stage. You know, the first stage is that time where the cervix is making its way to about three centimetres and then from three centimetres normally you dilate about a centimetre an hour until you get to ten centimetres. So it's like seven hours at least. So it's a, generally speaking a, a a long time, but you know it can happen quite fast. So what else? Anything else that was was uh, 
Uh, nothing else that comes to mind. I just remember sitting there for hours and hours in the, you know, 2, 3 a.m., just rolling around with my yeah. big belly, not sleeping and just, <laughs> you know, thinking up all these horror stories. <laughs> you know, I think it's a way of being, I mean, being awake in the middle of the night, not that I'm advocating you should you shouldn't get on the you shouldn't get on the telephone. But I think the thing is that it's actually preparing you for having a baby mm. for the middle of the night, feeds and stuff like that. So I often say to I say to my patients that, you know, you should just get up, do something, don't Google. No, don't I used sit to, there. Yeah, I used to pull my head out of Google and just go for a walk around the yeah. house and, you know, stretch my legs and I think that's stretch. the way to do it. And then come back to bed and hopefully you feel a little bit tired. So we're gearing up towards the end of pregnancy and um you know, did you, you had you had the cot set up? You had everything set up at home. Yes, we had uh, our little nursery set up, and we did that. You know, baby mama dance that everyone does. Baby it's mama like, dance. Yeah, I you'll don't have know to that. look it up. Oh, it's, tell me. It's like a a bit of a thing that all the people do on the Instagram. Oh, jeez, I've not seen <laughs> yeah, any of these. Yeah. I've seen the gender reveals. Oh, yeah, this so, is a new, this is just the thing. So, what's a baby mama dance? Tell so me. So it's this song that you play in the background, and then you just dance with your partner, and yeah, yeah, it's rub, like rub welcome, your big belly. So it's like welcoming a spirit into the world. <laughs> yeah, or pretty much. <laughs> did, many, did anyone else in the family? I mean, obviously, you and your brother and your partner knew that you're having a boy. Everyone else in the family knew you're having a boy. Yeah, after our gender reveal, yeah, yeah everyone, everyone everyone knew. So it was nice to know that we were having so a little boy because I could plan our little nursery. And, yeah. You know. Had you had a name already picked out in mind at this point? We had a short list of names, uh, but my husband had a really good, you know, good list to pull from and it was his job to decide on the oh, name actually. I didn't want the pressure. It's oh, really? too much pressure. <laughs> yeah. You were happy with the end result though? Yeah. Did yeah. you have a bit of a short list? Mm, yeah. We came up with that list kind of together. But, yeah, my husband is just at the end, I was like, you need to decide. I can't <laughs> I can't deal with the pressure. <laughs> yeah, no, it's understandable. It is very, look, I think it's very difficult. And it's interesting. I think you spend so much time, I know that we did with our three children, spent so much time trying to think about what's the right name. Mm. And then in the end, you know, a year later down the track, it'd probably the same for you at eight months, you just go, no, okay, yeah, he's a Hudson. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's sort of like that's what he was meant to be anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the cod's done. I have to look up the mama dance after this so yeah. I can be well educated. <laughs> so this is interesting. We've got not only a gender reveal, we've also got a mama dance. You yeah. did a baby shower, I presume? Uh, yeah, we did, oh, we did a baby cue. You did a baby yeah, cue? Yeah, we did a baby cue. Because I'm just thinking everyone now, you know, it's fashionable now to do a baby shower for the girls and a baby cue for the yeah. boys, but oh. you did a combined, just combined. baby cue. Yeah, yeah. We did that at 30, 37 weeks, just... I, I think Left mainly. Left you run a bit late. You could have had a baby I before know. then. Yeah, I know. Well, I was up until I finished work and I wanted to as kind of a celebrate finishing work as well. So. Yeah. But I wanted my husband involved because, you know, he's half of the yeah. equation. And Certainly. Yeah, it, was, it was great fun. Yeah. I think blokes, um, it, it, I think, you know, the, obviously one of the great things and I talked about before, the bad thing in terms of not seeing many childbirths and all that sort of stuff. But one of the good things that's happened is, of course, blokes now and partners in general, same-sex couples, and even if you're a single woman having a best mate or your mother or your sister involved, it's having other people, mm. and particularly the other significant person being involved in that childbirth experience, whereas in the past, you know, the guys were out probably still at work or, you know, doing something with their mates and then would get called up and said, hey, listen, you've, you've got a son or you've got a daughter. Yeah. That's quite nice for the. How, how did the birthing classes go for you? Uh, uh, it was a bit fluffy, to be yeah. honest. We we didn't do anything. Did you do them job. through the hospital? Yeah, we just did. It was it was just one kind of nine till two. Yeah, big on session. Sunday. Yeah, there wasn't anything that came out of it that you thought, ah, oh, 
No, not really. I no. think they, they. I think my husband got a bit out of it. Uh, they yeah. did like this, you know, scenario of what it would be like if it was a Caesar, and they got all the boys up and showed how many people would be in the room and yeah. that kind of thing. And yeah, it was it was good for him, I think, just to see uh, a video of stages of labour and that yep. kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I had, he get d- too had he done much research? No, nothing. No, <laughs> didn't read the books. No, no, <laughs> no. Didn't listen to any of the podcasts I sent him. Didn't didn't read the books. Did you did you sort of try to fill him in with some information? Uh, yes, yeah, I did. But I think it was more so he wasn't going to be scared on the day of yeah. what he would see or what would happen. Uh, but he's quite a resilient person anyway, so yeah. I, I kind of knew he was going to be all right with it. He, 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 sometimes those big blokes, though, they're the ones that faint. Yes, I know. I'm aware of that. <laughs> I, I was, but he doesn't like getting you know blood taken or anything like yeah. that. So I was quite you know, aware that potentially there could be an issue. But he was all right in the childbirth? He was, yeah. I'll be interested. We'll talk a little bit more about (laughs) that. So we're gearing up towards the end of the pregnancy and was there anything major that was happening during towards that that end of the pregnancy that was concerning you, apart from obviously what it feels like to be Mm. induced or when your waters break or whatever? Was there anything that was worrying you at all? Uh, Nothing in particular. We Because we were private and my ob was scanning us weekly uh, and just in his room's towards the end of the pregnancy and Bubs was measuring quite big, uh, which he, the ob, my ob was a little concerned about but we, we kind of discussed a plan of, of what we would do and, um, you know, what options are and that kind of thing. Um, so what, what, what was discussed at that point? So I guess we mainly discuss C-section and induction and those kinds of things. So how well, how big did you suspect baby to be and how big was Hudson in the end? So his head and torso or abdomen were measuring in the 98th, 98th percentile. Good percentile. Yeah, big, yeah. big baby. And he actually measured to having tiny little femurs, so yeah. in the fifth centile femurs. Right. Um, but, yeah, his head and abdomen or torso were measuring huge. And there was just a little concern, and that was around the 39, 40-week mark. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, there was just a little concern around what, what to do. So he was tossing up because we had spoken about the ARRIVE trial. Yes. And we were discussing whether or not to induce at 39 because he was measuring big. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we just, yeah, talked about C-section and that kind of thing. But because, you know, my placenta was still looking good and Bubs was okay, I was healthy, we decided to wait and yep. try and wait for a spontaneous labour. Cool. Uh, yeah. I think the other, a lot of, it's interesting, In I think in parts of China, I've got a couple of patients who've come from China and in their first pregnancies, the Chinese, I think the Chinese doctors love doing caesarean sections. Oh. Um, and, and in some cases, this particular, and I don't know if this is true, don't, I'm not starting a, a war against China, let me tell you that now, but um, this particular patient said that she had an MRI scan done of her pelvis and they used to actually do this back in the olden days. They used to do a ultrasound scan, not an ultrasound, sorry, an X-ray of a woman's pelvis with the baby's head to see if there was something called cephalic pelvic disproportion. So in other words, was there a potential, you know, a larger head compared to the woman's pelvis? And that would then dictate whether you would have a cesarean section or not. Now, those X-rays aren't being done anymore, of course, because of the radiation exposure to the baby. So the Chinese, well, this particular patient had a MRI, which is very safe in pregnancy, um, and we do MRIs not in, not we do it if there's a reason to do it. But some of the some of these doctors are, are doing MRIs to see if there's any pelvic cephalic disproportion or head pelvis disproportion, and then advising women to have a Caesar. Mm-hmm. So this woman had 
had been advised to have a seizure in her first pregnancy on the basis that the MRI had suggested the baby's head was too big for the pelvis. So in a su- subsequent pregnancy, obviously, she came to me and said, this is what my doctor did in, in China for the first pregnancy. And I said, well, you know, we don't tend to do that here in Australia. Um, and if you want to have a vaginal birth, I'd be happy for, for you to have a vaginal birth after a season. She had a successful vaginal birth after a season. But the reason I tell that story is because you're never going to know whether you're going to be okay for a vaginal birth or be successful in having a vaginal birth until you actually try to have a vaginal birth. Because the baby's heads, I, I, I describe the baby's head to my patients as a basketball. If you imagine you've got a basketball, and you imagine the leaves of the basketball represent the different bones on the baby's head. So the basketball's got to get through the basketball hoop, yeah, and that's the pelvis. And if you imagine you've got those leaves of the basketball and then get rid of the black bits that are holding the leaves together and allow the two leaves of the basketball to fold over one another, that then shrinks the diameter of the ball. So if the ball initially, without it sort of folding over one another, didn't fit through the hoop, i.e. the head's not fitting through the pelvis, as you then allow the baby's head to mould during labour, some of the bones will fold over one another a little bit, just a little bit, enough to allow the baby's head, just like a basketball getting rid of the black bits to fold over one another, to allow the basketball through the hoop, exactly the same, the baby's head then sort of moulds itself nicely through the pelvis and, of course, you can have a vaginal birth. So people often look at me and go, you know, my husband's got a big head and, you know, his mum had to have a Caesar and, you know, what's the size of my baby's head? Is it huge? Because, you know, I don't want to have a Caesar. Oh, sorry, I don't want to, I, I want, I don't, I want to have a Caesar if it's too big. And I say, well, look, you're not going to know until we're in labour. So I think, uh, I think there is some, certainly some evidence to suggest now inducing for a larger baby isn't such a bad idea. But equally so, you shouldn't be scared off having a vaginal birth just because potentially the baby's head's too big. Yeah, and I, I kind of was wanting to give it a crack and wait for a spontaneous labour because I had Googled too many things about induction anyway. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just, yeah. Uh, All right, so you, so you didn't, you, you, you didn't decide to do an induction labour. How many, how many, when did you go into labour there? How many weeks were you? Uh, so, well, I was booked in to have an induction yep. at 41 and 2. Yeah. And I went into spontaneous labour at 41 and 1. Perfect. Yeah. I Good think time. the deadline was The deadline looming. was there and you had to, mm. it was, and so, um, Tell us a little bit about how, well, obviously you were concerned about how do you know when you're in labour, <laughs> when will my orders break, all these sort of things. So what, what exactly happened? Uh, so on the day I had an appointment to come see my ob anyway. So yep. he, because I was booked in for the following day for an induction, he wanted to check and see because uh, my cervix was high and closed the yep. last time he saw me uh, and he wanted to just check if he would need to do um Gel. Yeah, yeah, so is it the prostaglandin gel yeah, prostaglandin. Um, in the evening? And I went in and saw him and he said that uh, I was already, uh, you know, one one centimetre, I think. Perfect. And, uh, I didn't have any, you know, any feeling of anything different to any other day. Yeah. Um, but he said when I came into the room that day, I was quite flush and looked red and he, he kind of knew I was going to go into labour that night spontaneously. So yeah. he sent me home after... Um, doing an internal, checking where I was at. and uh, Cancelled his dinner dates yeah, and said, hey, listen, the, I'm on call for Carly. That's it. <laughs> um, <laughs> As we all do. Yeah. Every time you think, oh, my God, okay, someone's going to go to labour tonight, so I tell the wife, hey, listen, I might need to head out tonight. Yeah. It's, it, it was really good because he was quite reassuring and pretty much exactly said that. So it's yeah. like, you know, any t- time you need to come in tonight, if you do, just yeah. make sure you come in and page me and that kind of thing. So it was great. Cool. Uh, and so I went home, fluffed around a bit, 
And then by about uh, mid-arvo, I went to the toilet and had a show. Yeah. Uh, and I started getting some light tightenings on mainly right in my lower part of my belly and I thought, you know, I don't know. I never had Braxton Hicks, right. so I didn't know what was happening. I assumed yeah. it was Braxton Hicks and then was tossing up and did some more Googling around it. It's <laughs> probably labour and uh, my mucus plug had come out. Yeah. So it was, you know, quite a big show, I guess. And then I uh, called my mum and took a photo and sent a photo to her <laughs> and just to see what and, she thought. It was. And yeah. how many kids had mum had? Uh, two. She's had two right. babies, yeah. And was she, is she, was she a midwife? No, right. <laughs> but being a mum. But being a mum, yeah. she's your mum. Yeah. Mum's going to know. Yeah. Hey, guys, Nikki here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. Often I say to people that, you know, the way that you can tell you're going into labour is if you get increasing frequency and intensity of the contractions. So, you know, they might come every 10 minutes or 15 minutes rather than they come every 10 minutes, they come every five minutes, but then also, the you know, the pain level sort of increases. What sort of happened for you? Obviously the mucus plug comes out, you have these small little tightenings. How did it sort of progress? Uh, it progressed relatively slowly, I guess. Uh, I kind of stayed at home and just waddled around and uh, continued to have regular I guess, contractions or tightenings. Uh, and then by mid-evening, Arvo, they were really intense and becoming much more frequent. So I ended up calling the birthing suite at the hospital yep. and I had a contraction while I was on the phone to the midwife and she said to me, well, it looks like you probably need to come in. Uh, and I said to her, you know, I don't want to come in too early and, uh, you know, I don't want to waste your time and this kind of stuff. And, yeah, she's like, just come in. So I had a shower uh, got in the car with the hubby. Yeah. The hubby. What time is this? Uh, about 11 o'clock at I night know, yeah, that yeah. night. So yeah. uh, I um, told my husband to rest that afternoon because I, I kind of got the idea that we were going to have a yeah. baby the next yeah. day. Um, so he tried to get some rest and he wanted to stop at the shops on the way to the hospital while I was to having. Get, to get lollies? Very, well, yep, to get yeah. food supplies <laughs> for himself. Away. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was having intense contractions in the front of Coles, in front of all these people. <laughs> you allowed him to. Well, yes. I'm, <laughs> I'm a good wife. <laughs> That's going to be your 21st birthday. Yeah. Well, yes, Birthday story, will. yeah. Um, and then, yeah, we got to the hospital. I was. They were very intense by the time I got to the hospital. Yeah. Um, so how often were they coming at this point? Uh, every three-ish minutes. Okay, um, Yeah. It's actually, it's actually, and I know you said you rang the, the hospital. I think a, a lot of the temptation is for someone else always to ring because you're in pain. And mm-hmm. I think often, I know that for myself, often the husband or the partner significant other will ring and it, it's really hard to get a bit of a picture and a story. So I think it's always important if you're speaking to your obstetrician or you're speaking to the hospital that you're birthing at, that it's actually that you are the person, the woman who's in labour is the person because you'll know what's happening. It's sort of like trying to get a you know, story from someone by a third party. And, of course, as soon as you had a contraction, they could tell something was happening, so they told you to come in. Yeah. So you're in the hospital now and it's 11, just after 11. Yeah. We've packed full of munchies. Yeah, <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> ready to go. Yeah. The night's yet young and he, at least he's got all his food for the night. <laughs> That's it. Um, and they're coming every three minutes. So you arrive in the hospital and tell us a little bit about what happened then. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a bit of a blur, but I remember coming through the birthing suite, which we had done a tour of on our um, little birthing class. Yeah. Uh, so it was we had a beautiful room. Where it was quite big, and 
got in there and got settled and I got hooked up to some monitoring um, yeah. just to see what was happening. And by then I had already had a TENS machine on, so right. I had planned on using a TENS machine throughout yeah. labour or in the early stages of labour for some pain relief. Uh, so, yeah, the midwife hooked me up to the machine, the CTG monitoring, and just had a look at bubs and my contractions and that kind of thing. And, and so what was that? So at that point in time, obviously, bubs looking good, yep. you're contracting well. Yeah. Did you have an examination then or did you wait until your obstetrician came in? I asked for an internal yeah. from the midwife just yeah. to see how far I'd progressed because I was labouring at home all of the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and so when did they first start in earnest? Like when did when did you start getting these three millimetre contractions that were happening with regularity? At about six o'clock that evening. That evening. So yeah. this so by this stage was sort of five hours into late. Well, five hours of really good contraction. Yeah. So when did, they examined you sometime after eleven or just before midnight? Yeah, about midnight. And how many centimetres were you then? Three. Three. Yeah, not very. <laughs> yeah, everyone goes, oh, my God, I'm only yeah, three. Yeah. But in actual fact, that period of time is really important to know that the period of time from when you're one centimetre like you were when your obstetrician had examined you that earlier that day to get to three centimetres can take a fair while. And all that work that you were doing between six and 11 or 12 was actually getting that cervix to three when we're moving now into the active stages of labour. So people often go, oh, God, I'm only three. But that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure they told you that, but you were going, no, it's not on top. I've still got seven to go. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it's 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock. You'd had the swab for GBS for the yep. Group B strep and that was negative, so we didn't need to give you any antibiotics. So we're just plodding along. Tell us what happened. What, what can you... What can you remember of that early phase of being in labour? I think presumably your brain sort of makes you forget a lot of it so that you go back again. But what can you remember that stood out to you? Um, I remember my husband sleeping on the <laughs> fold-out bed. Uh, He's going to love listening yeah, to this podcast. He's doing, He's, <laughs> he'll cop it for the rest of his life. Uh, but, yeah, I remember uh, I remember just intense. Uh, I, I'm a very internal, like silent person when yeah. I'm in pain. Uh, and I just remember internalising and just really focusing on bubs yeah. uh, and using my TENS machine, which I don't, I don't know how much it did or didn't do, but it was a really welcome distraction from from my contractions. Right. Uh, so so you were using the TENS, were you using gas or anything else? No, nothing so The else. TENS was good enough for you. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Had you done anything like hypnobirthing or anything like that? No. no but you were pretty much doing that anyway. Yeah, I, I think I was um, just naturally you know, keeping calm and breathing yeah. through it. And so I did a lot of swaying and I needed to walk around. So I had the, um, uh, I had no monitoring on, but when I did, we had the portable monitoring on. Right. Uh, but they were happy for me to just walk around and do yeah. whatever I needed to do and yeah. get up and down on the ground. I didn't like being on the bed. Yeah. Uh, it was quite restricting of, you know, just going with the flow and oh, without moving doubt. around. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and I ended up in the shower for about three hours uh, in closer to the morning. So it got to about 2 or 3 a.m. and the midwife said, why don't you jump in the shower, see how it goes. It might be really nice to have um, some warm water on on your belly. Uh, yeah. And I had my contractions all in the front lower part of my abdomen. Yeah. Uh, so I had the hose from the shower on my tummy and I didn't realise I was in there for three hours. It just yeah. time just time went. Flew. Yeah, it was crazy. She came in and she checked how I was going. And So this is now what? Around about four o'clock. Yeah, four or five a.m. And what? How many centimeters were you then? Uh, six. Perfect. Yeah. So everything progressed reasonably nicely. Yeah. <laughs> My husband was still asleep. So was, he was happy. <laughs> he wasn't in the shower with you. No. Oh, sleeping. Resting. He did. did Ready for the big day. Ah, oh, of course. <laughs> did he change the first nappy at least? 
Oh, he did. Yeah, oh, that's he good. did. Layla, that's the hardest yeah, one. Yeah, he did a good job. Um, all right, so we're at six centimetres and we're sort of sitting around about four o'clock in the morning at this point. You, you're not thinking because I think the I think some women will find that that the, the time is just so long. But in actual mm. fact, like you said, within a blink of an eye, you're sort of now, yeah. you know, six centimetres and it's sort of like how I didn't realise it was there for three hours in the yeah. shower. Yeah. Is that sort of the impression that you get of the whole birth that it just flew by? I mean, you look back on it now and you go, oh, well, okay, yes, if I think about it, 11, you know, 6 o'clock to whenever we had the baby was a long period of time. But in actual fact, realising when you were there, it flew by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it was just a blur. It, and it was, I thinking back, you know, as a, uh, like wrapping it all up, like it was, it, I, it was the best experience. Like, yeah. and I wouldn't wish it to go faster. Yeah. It was, yeah, it just went, yeah, it was. Super quick. Yeah, it just went so fast. <laughs> so fast. Yeah. That's why you want another one. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we're six centimetres. Yeah. Four o'clock in the morning. The next examination presumably would have been around four hours later. Yeah. So my ob, because we were booked in for the induction, yeah. uh, he knew I was in there anyway. Yes. Um, he had come in at eight a.m. So he yes. was going to break my waters at eight a.m. Because the waters haven't broken. No, yet, of I had yeah. no, I hadn't had them break. My hind waters had actually. Yes. Um, but you know, waters hadn't broken. So um, he came in at eight a.m. and I was still only six centimeters. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I hadn't progressed any further from there. Yep. Um, and did you sort of give you an indication of the position of the baby at that point? Uh, the it had turned like half posterior. It was so. Kind of, so still looking upwards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so what was the what was the suggestion at that point? Um, to wait and see. Yes. Keep going a little bit longer if yep. I can tolerate it. But he said it could be hours until I progressed to ten centimeters because it had really stalled and yes. there's potential. Then you know if I don't progress anymore for a C-section. Yeah. At that point, I, I just couldn't deal with the pain. Yeah. Um, so I asked for an uh, epidural. Yeah. I didn't want anything in between. I knew that if I wanted pain relief, I'm just going to go straight to an epidural. Yeah. So we did uh, that after a lot of tears and, you know, I thought I was failing and yeah. this kind of stuff. It was yeah. quite hard to give in for that. Um, and did the hormone drip start as well or just the epidural? Uh, yeah, the hormone drip started as well, yeah. yeah. So as soon as I had the epidural, maybe uh, I guess – an hour later, we hooked up to the hormone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think the reason, and it's important probably for, for our listeners to have a bit of an understanding why that sort of happens. So sometimes when you're in labour and everything's progressing quite well, and particularly in a first-time mother and really only in a first-time mother, the, 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 the cervix stops changing, that's often a sign that the baby's head's in the wrong position. That's why I asked you whether the baby was looking up or in a posterior position like him lying back to back. And the reason in part why that occurs is because the diameter of the baby's head presenting into the pelvis, when the baby's looking up, is actually around about a centimetre more than what it would be if the baby's head's looking down because of the way our heads aren't spherical, they're sort of oblong shape. So if your head is really flexed down and you're sort of looking down towards towards the bottom, the baby's head's looking down towards the bottom, then um, and, and so the back of the baby's head's facing up, then that diameter is a lot less. And so that allows the baby's head to f- effectively move through the birth canal well. When the baby's head's looking up, of course, that 0.5 of a centimetre or a centimetre more means that the baby's head just can't get down further and the cervix therefore can't change. And we will often recommend at that point an epidural for two, fa- two factors. Number one, to relax the pelvic floor. 
Because if the pelvic floor is super, super tight, it will won't allow that rotation of baby's head to go from looking up to looking down. So by relaxing the pelvic floor, you imagine you've got this, you know, again, using that basketball analogy and you're sort of holding it really tightly with your hands, you ain't going to rotate it around. But if you sort of let your hands relax a little bit, then someone could sort of swivel it in your hands a little bit. And that's what the epidural does. So don't, I think it's important, and you've probably raised the thing that every woman sort of says, oh, my God, I'm failing. You're not failing. That's just the ergonomics. Mm. And, you know, hundreds, 200s, 300s of years ago, women didn't have access to an epidural and, you know, they didn't have that relief that they could get from the perspective of not only pain but also to allow the baby's head to, to move around. And then the other thing and the reason why we start the hormone drip is to facilitate the contraction so they really sort of drive that baby's head and, the pelvis, a woman's pelvis is fantastic in that it, it does act like a bit of a gutter that sort of forces baby's head to turn around to come into that anterior position so the baby's eyes are looking down so that you've actually got the right diameter fitting through the pelvis. And so you know, that, was the, that was the right decision to make even though at the time you were probably feeling like, oh, my God, you know, yeah. why is this happening to me? Yeah, and it was terrifying. I didn't yeah. know what to expect with the epidural and yeah. you know, big needle and whatever. but. Did they talk a bit about the epidural at the birthing class? Uh, not not in great detail. No. No, no, no. not in great detail. But the uh, anaesthetist who came in, yeah. she was, yeah, she was unreal. Awesome. Yeah. Often I'm a bit jealous of the anaesthetist. Well, she swans in and swans out. She swans in, swans out, cures pain. Get my pain relief. Yeah, they're like, See you later. I call them angels. Yeah. They come yeah. in and then forever they're like, ah, yeah. that anaesthetist. She was great. <laughs> Us obstetricians and midwives have to sweat it all out. That's it. And they come in for 10 <laughs> seconds, do their work, and like, they're the best. Yeah. Um, so this was now around about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock by the time we've got the epidural in place, presumably, and the hormone drips running through. Mm. How quickly did you go from six centimetres to fully dilated? Uh, so my obstetrician said he'll be back at 11.30. Yep. And by then I was 10 centimetres. Perfect. Yeah. So just a, another two hours of me relaxing and yep. having some quiet time. And I was actually able to, because it had been quite some time, I was worried about pushing and having the yeah. energy to do that. And having the epidural gave me that time to be able to rest. It was yeah. the best decision that I, like looking back, it was the best decision I made. I, just to recall it, uh, one of my own patients, I remember she had a very, she had a doula who came into the room mm. with us as well and her husband and the instructions at the very start of labour was, Joe, I don't want to have an epidural. I don't even want to be told that it, to even request an epidural. But, and so I remember one, you know, came in and did the first assessment and, you know, she was in a significant amount of pain and I hope this particular patient's listening because she'll remember the story. Um and I said to I said to her, would you like to have an epidural? And the husband and the daughter said, no, she doesn't want an epidural, remember? And But the thing for me was, and it's really difficult as maybe as a male but also as an obstetrician to see someone in so much pain and suffering, and I kid you not, she looked like she was being tortured. And so I came, I said, okay, well, fair enough. I, I respected her wishes because that was the wishes. I'd already known that, right? So I was being... You know, I was just being kind because I didn't want her to be in pain. But I came back four hours later and she hadn't changed that much and was an OP position very similar to you. And this time around, I said exactly, I said this time around, because this is another four hours of torture. Like, you know, you know, if if it was in Guantanamo Bay, <laughs> it, we, we would be like, you know, putting people up for yeah. military, you know, uh, uh, hearings and stuff like that. So I said again, 
would you like to have an epidural? And they both responded, no. And then this time around I said, no, 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 I'm asking a particular patient. She said, Joe, please, this is just, I'm, I'm so struggling. And anyway, she had an epidural and then had just a completely different birthing experience. It was almost like chalk and cheese and she'll testify to that. And she, and, and she said, you know, it was just I was not enjoying myself, freaking out about the pushing, like you said, and then all of a sudden I've got an epidural and I feel like at least I'm in contr- a little bit of control. Yeah, and it and, gives you that time to rest. and Yeah, yeah. rest up because you had, then you've got two hours now, in your case, to rest up before the pushing starts. Mm. So in comes the obstetrician. You're fully <laughs> dilated. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Do we start pushing straight away? Uh, no, he gave me a little bit longer, yeah. about half an hour to an hour. I yeah. think he was consulting. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I'll come back in about an hour. Yeah. Um, uh, but he wanted me to start pushing with the midwives. Gotcha. Yeah. So we did that. So we started pushing. And yeah. how long did you push for? Ended up being two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Lots of pushing. Lots of pushing. Yeah. So after about an hour, uh, baby had not gotten all the way down so yeah. he got stuck yeah his shoulders were a little bit stuck so my obstetrician came back after an hour of pushing and he said that if it's not out if he's not out now the baby then he's going to need to help so yeah. I'm very thankful he came back when he did um so as soon as he came in the midwives knew what he wanted to do but I hadn't even considered forceps or vacuum or anything yeah. like that I haven't even I didn't research any of that in my did googling they talk about that the birthing classes though yeah yeah a little Again, bit briefly like yeah. I was not I don't think I was absorbing it that much right. and it's, they kind of skim over it but yeah. when it's happening to you it's so different to seeing it on a powerpoint presentation yeah so he, as soon as that happened you know they got the stirrups out and my legs were up and yeah. Um, he was gowned up and all of it just happened so quickly, like everyone in the room knew what to do and yeah. I was sitting there pulling my pants because I didn't know what was going to happen and, yeah, what he wanted to do. So, so let's, I mean, I think it's important maybe for me to break it down for mm. people. So, you know, the babies, we've talked about the baby's head coming down through the birth canal a little bit like a basketball hoop or basketball rather coming through the basketball hoop. Sometimes, particularly with an epidural, you, you don't get the sensation necessarily of where you need to push and that mm. can be part of the, that's probably the only issue with an epidural. Mm. Some people ask me, does an epidural slow down labour? Well, it doesn't, but it does potentially increase the chances that as an obstetrician we may need to come in and help facilitate the last little bit of birth. I always describe it to patients as like, and then, you know, very simplistically, and I'm not, it's trying to diminish the fact that labour is not simplistic, but it's like having a, a Coke bottle and you, you know, you're trying to get it open. And woman's done the vast majority of the work and the obstetrician really takes the glory at the end really for all the work that you've done. But often it's just having that babe, the baby's head now presumably was looking the right way. Yes. And so the baby's head's coming up towards the pelvic bone, which is a yeah. little bit like trying to drive a truck underneath a bridge and the, the the top of the truck can't get under the bridge. That's exactly how he pretty much explained Correct. it. Correct. Just couldn't get it. Couldn't over. get under yeah. And so what we'll do is often we'll either use a cup or sometimes forceps. And what we try to do is flex the baby's head right down so the chin of the baby comes right down on the chest of the baby. And that's like tipping the truck forward just so that we can dip it underneath or almost like get the baby's head to do a limbo underneath the pubic bone just so that we can facilitate that last little bit of the baby's head coming out. That's all That's all we really need to do. And the remainder, oh, and that's why we need the woman to be very comfortable to continue to push because we and we don't like her being hours and hours and hours of pushing because she's exhausted, is that then we can facilitate that last little bit of pushing the baby out. So 
I sort of say to my patients, it's a little bit like you're the pilot of an aeroplane. You're in control of the, of the, of the throttle of the aeroplane, so how fast the, the aeroplane goes. All I do is I'm like the guy with the paddles telling you which way to go. So it's like you're coming into Tullamarine Airport or to, you know, whatever it is up in Sydney, Sydney Airport or Queensland Airport, whatever they call it up there, and you've got to get to the aero bridge and you don't know which way to go, so you're following the guy with the paddles to tell you which way to steer. That's exactly what we're doing, popping a cup on baby's head, all the forceps to guide baby's head that last little bit, but you're still the engine driving the baby forward. So did... Did your obstetrician use the vacuum yeah. or the forceps? Yeah, we had a vacuum delivery. The vac- vacuum, yeah. Yeah. And everything went seemingly good with that. I needed a big episiotomy. Yeah. Just there was a lot of pressure on my perineum. Yeah. Uh, and it looked like it was going to tear. So we, you know, he decided to to do that, which was yeah. which was fine and no real drama. I had the epidural on board. And, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and all people get fearful of an episiotomy and it's just, it's it's unfortunate that an episiotomy gets again if you googled it you get a lot of mm. bad raps about an episiotomy and i think you know a good obstetrician will not do an episiotomy unless it's clinically and really needed mm. and we tend to do it for a couple of reasons well in fact really only one reason if we're worried that you're going to tear and the tear is going to extend to the bottom and it's going to potentially cause an injury to the muscle surrounding the bottom and therefore continence of of you know number twos and you know we're mindful of the fact, particularly when we stitch stitch the episiotomy up, that um, you know we don't we don't make it so that it's going to be painful later on in life, which presumably and hopefully for you it's not. Yeah, oh, you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even it's know. Great. And, and I think that's. And I think again, I think episiotomies do get a lot of, a lot of a bad rap, but you know, in this political politically correct environment that we live in, I like I often say to patients, it's release, it's just releasing the skin, mm. and. I liken the perineum, so the, the air around the vagina as it's stretching to a rubber band. So if you imagine a rubber band, if you've got a rubber band and you just keep stretching and stretching and stretching, you don't know where it's going to actually tear. And the path of least resistance, generally speaking, from a vagina perspective, is it'll tear straight down towards the bottom. That's what it'll, that's what it'll do because that's the weakest point of the perineum. But if we can release that rubber band on an angle somewhere away from the from straight up and down, we can release the rubber band. And what, what do I mean by that is by doing an episiotomy off to the side, then we're going to prevent that from tearing down towards the bottom. So, you know, that, that's why we do it. It's just a release of the skin. And we know then, like a rubber band, that you can glue it back together or get the soldering iron and put the two rubber <laughs> bits back together, that we can do that with the stitches as well. Yeah. So Hudson was born. Yes, he was. <laughs> Straight onto the chest. Yes. Magnificent. Yes. What did you think when you first saw him? Um, looked like you, looked like Dad. Oh, he was awake. He was yeah. so alert and just, uh, you know, strong neck up and looking around the room. Yeah. And yeah, it was unreal. That's, what was your first immediate thought? Uh, I, I guess it was, ter- I was terrified. Just really? It was finally here and yeah. I think the build-up was just so much and I just was... A blubbering mess. I was yeah. so happy to meet him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what about your husband? What was he? What do you? What when you looked <laughs> over to your husband? And obviously he's looking at because you you've got all the pride and joy on you. But mm. you know what? What did you think about you know in terms of your your, your husband? What did he? What was his reactions? Or uh, he was a uh, very proud dad. Had the iPhone out and you yeah. know taking photos and snapping away. Yeah, yeah. He was. He was. He didn't cry. He's not a crier, but yeah, you, I could see that he was just ecstatic that 
Bubs was here and in the, I forgot that we had to name Hudson. You know, it was just you get so caught up in the whole yeah. thing and one of the midwives asked what his name was and I just looked at my husband and said, go on, you know, tell tell yeah. everyone and say his name for the first time out loud and, yeah, it was really nice to, yeah, for him to be a part of it like that. And, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And when did he get his first cuddle? He First he went and dressed Bubs with the midwives while I was getting all fixed up and yeah. um, stitched up and that kind okay. of thing. Yeah. So how did you spend those first few, you know, half hour, mm. hour or so? Because now we're sort of we're early morning, well, no, mid mid, mid afternoon. afternoon. Yeah. So how did you, how did you spend that first amount of time with one another? Uh, it was it, a bit of a it just the whole room emptied. You know, everyone just left the room, and it was just the I three was unhooked you. from all the machines. <laughs> I don't even remember how it happened. Yeah. It was just yeah, I looked around, and it was just us three. And yeah, how was, long did it take to get your leak? Because a lot of people say, "Oh mm. my god." Yeah. Oh, I've got an epidural and when am I going to get up, be able to get up and have that first awesome shower? Yeah, yeah. The, the midwives are really good. at. I think after about an hour of it being in the birthing suite, they came back to help me in the shower. But yeah. I was legless. It was <laughs> wobbling everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I think I was so exhausted from a big day of Yeah, and a big night as well because you've been up the whole day and up the night. I think it's and harder I, when you labour yeah. overnight because that first day you're a bit yeah. whacked out. And I think even, you know, the day, two days before that, uh, it was I was in pre-labour. I was having, you know, just weird feelings and that yeah. kind of stuff. So I didn't sleep for two or three days pre this anyway. So, yeah, yeah I was knackered, but. Yeah. And so when did you start telling people that you had the baby? Oh, in that we already called people. In the oh, they were in, yeah, in the middle of the night? Yeah. yeah. Did you already told your mum? Because she already knew. I told mum, yeah. but how, mom, long did, how long did it take her to get there? Oh, she was good. She didn't come until we were back in the um, ward. Oh, cool. Yeah, she was really good. It was just lovely to have us three. Just, yeah, for a little spend while. spend some time together. Yeah. I did a, a um, podcast series called Hello Bump with uh, Monique Bowley and Beck Chad and we talked about a lot of stuff around... Uh, the postnatal period, and one of the things I said was that the par- partner or the husband or the you know, wife needs to be like a bodyguard for the first day. You can't let, in fact, your partner's a bodyguard. Mm, you say yeah. you, you almost <laughs> need to say to people, "Hey, listen, don't come," because I think this this time, this you know, just the three of you, is just the most enriching and rewarding time. And you don't need it to be spoiled with 50 other people mm. in the room. And it's not for you anyway. It's for them to come in. So they yeah. can do it, you know, anytime. the next week. Exactly, yeah. anytime. Yeah. I remember there was one couple, I think, they were of European origin, and, and uh, I went out and there was a, about 25 people in the waiting room Gosh. of the birthing suite. Mm. They were all waiting to come in. And I walked out and I said, uh, are they, like, is that like your extended family? She said, no, that's just immediate family, brothers and sisters <laughs> and their kids. I went, my God, it's wow. a massive family. They all came in soon after the birth. Oh, gosh. Uh, but you know what, each to their own, and I'm sure they wanted to share that that love and joy with everybody mm. so so soon. So what do you remember most about the birth? Uh, you know, I, I, we talked about how quick it went in terms of, you know, just in your own mindset, even though it was a very long labour that occurred overnight. But what's the most, what's the thing that you remember most, the thing that terrified you the most and and, and sort of the thing that, well, I suppose having him was the best, but, you mm. know, what, 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 what was sort of the, what sort of your overwhelming feeling of the whole birthing experience? I guess one of the most memorable things was after I had him and um, Hudson and my husband were together in the room I was in the shower and just sitting there reflecting on everything. That yeah. was one of the most memorable things. So I was just sitting there with the water on me and I had my uh, catheter bag and just sitting in the shower yeah. and just reflecting on the whole And a thing. sense of empowerment. Yeah, and I'd yeah. done it and I was a mum and my belly was empty. And yeah. It was like my belly was like a waterbed. It was all yeah. empty and just, 
yeah, it was, I, I'll remember that that feeling in the shower afterwards for forever. Yeah. Did, <laughs> I, I asked this of my wife actually after she had the baby. Did you Do you find it really bizarre that, you know, at one time you've got this thing inside you that's kicking and moving and then like, mm. you know, minutes later it's out? Yeah. Did you, do, do you miss do you, do you miss the kicks? Oh yeah, and I think yeah. that's what drives you to have another baby. Yeah, or, you know, to to go again and just the feeling. I I I miss the feeling of being pregnant. Yeah, already. <laughs> Tell us a little about your recovery, because of course, you know, people, as I said before, a bit scared scared of an epidural, scared mm. potentially of a, of an episiotomy, and what that means. And and if you do read on online, you'll feel you'll see some people saying, you know, women are told they're having an episiotomy rather than consented for and how dare this happen and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, as I sort of explained, it's actually often a real decision. We don't take lightly, uh, but it's a decision we make because we want the best outcome basically. But tell us a little bit about the recovery, particularly in the first day, looking at a week, looking at three weeks. Mm. When did you get back to sort of your normal routine? You, were, you said you were heavily into exercise stuff. When did that sort of get back into, into mode? Uh, I guess the first day being on the ward, um, oh, it was a bit of a mess. So in that first week, um, my recovery was really good. My episiotomy was healing well. Yeah. Um, they have like special ice packs for you <laughs> up yeah. on the ward. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a long ice block really to shove in your <laughs> pants <laughs> between your hideous maternity pad. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't realise how long I would bleed for after birth actually, which was maybe 10, 12 days or yeah. so. Um, I didn't realise that, but my recovery generally was really good. My uh, uterus shrank down really quickly and um, my ab separation wasn't, I didn't have any issues with that at all. Cool. Um, Yeah, I was quite lucky. Were you feeling like, I mean, you know, obviously it's a bit sore down there, but when Mm. when did you get to the point where, you know, you you could almost say, well, look, I I haven't had a baby. I Mm. feel feel normal now. Um, Maybe two weeks after. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was, you know, opening my bowels fine and all that kind of thing. I, I didn't really... He had no problems think, with his bladder and all that sort of stuff. No, no, luckily I didn't. And How I much did he weigh in the end? We didn't talk about Four that. kilos. He was a big. Good size, yeah, he was Baba. a big, yeah. And he's, you know, I mentioned before his legs were measuring really small and yeah. his head was huge, but he was so in proportion. Yeah. I think you can only see so much on a scan. Of course. Once they're out, you know, he yeah. was just a big baby. Yeah, and there was no issues with Hudson afterwards in terms no, of he, the paediatrician was happy. Yeah, he was, yeah, happy. No dramas. So one of the things that strikes me as interesting is that you went through this whole period from 32 weeks Googling in the middle of the night mm-hmm. thinking, oh, my God, what's it going to happen, what's going to happen, you know, and you may have built up in your own mind a picture of what you thought childbirth was and then you had your childbirth. Like was it what you expected, not what you expected? Was there anything that stood out to you that said, you know what, I'm actually, I'm happy to do it again. Obviously, but mm. it, was there? What was the what was the overwhelming sense of what you'd feared and how what eventuated? Mm, I think what eventuated was better than anything I could have imagined. Yeah. Um, I, the, the whole experience, I loved every minute of it, which yeah. is mental. Thinking back to being in pain, and I don't remember the pain, so yeah. it's just the whole thing. Like you know, as a as a whole picture, I the whole thing was just beautiful. Like yeah. Reflecting on it all, and Mother Nature's yeah. done a good job of making us to forget stuff like that. Yeah, hey? well, even googling it doesn't tell you how good it's going to be. It's all yeah. negative, and and then when it comes and it happens, and it's a beautiful experience that it's you know it surprises it surprised me that it was going to be so good. Yeah, and that I'd enjoy it so much. And it's just such a shame, isn't it, that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of pregnancies and labour 
are just are absolutely fantastic. Mm. And even you know, having an elective cesarean section, you know, it, it's fantastic. Mm. Having a baby is fantastic. That's the prize in itself. And yet the 0.1% of what makes it onto the internet is what we read. And, of course, it's clickbait, so people just read it and read it. And it's the thing that gets Googled the most and, you know, people keep reading it. So, of course, it comes up on the search engine yeah. quicker. And as a thing that drives so so much leg, level of anxiety, and particularly in terms of labour, something called tocophobia, where they fear, women are actually fearful of labour. Um, and, uh, and but you know what? You don't. I think the or Carly's basically saying you don't need to be. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So the birth, everything's gone really good. Can you give us a little bit of an update on how things are with Hudson? How's it, you know, being a new mum? Have you met mm. other women in your circle? And how how do you feel? You know, you've com- your experience compared to them, even though we don't want to compare. Mm. But you know, uh, I guess the in my circle of friends, I'm quite young compared to some of my girlfriends who have babies, and yeah. um, you know, people in who are my friends who are my age, yeah, don't have kids yet. So, yeah, yeah it was more um, mums in my mother's group and a few, I've only got two or three girlfriends who have had babies. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to chat to them and we all have so many different experiences, some elective seizures, some emergency seizures, some similar to mine. Um, it was, yeah, it's nice to be able to talk to them about it after the fact though and go through your birth story and yeah, compare yeah, yeah. war stories, I guess. it's like, <laughs> um, But, yeah, having the bubs and that kind of thing, uh, be able to grow up together and experience your friends' babies and that kind of thing is yeah. really beautiful. Um, I guess. How's he? How is he? He's a little yeah, boy. Hudson. He's, he's challenging. He's he's um, wild. He started crawling just before six months. Yeah. He's almost walking and he's nearly oh eight God. months. Yeah. He's mental. My daughter's one mu- uh, a year and a couple of months, mm. and I think because she's a, a baby amongst, you know, a fourteen year old and a ten year old, oh, she yeah. gets everything given to her. Yeah. Not doing anything. Yeah, my so. mum said that. My my brother and I are very close and my I'm the oldest. Yeah. And she said my brother did nothing. Yeah. He didn't walk till he was fifteen. Yeah. Fifteen exactly. months old. He would have got everything for it. That's it. <laughs> um so, so, and definitely, so the point, you've been very fortunate, he's been sleeping well, eating well, putting on weight, or is that a little, I'm just, yeah. you're going to say the bad stuff now about him. Oh, uh, look, I think sleep is a, sleep would be nice. Sleep overrated. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessary. Have you gone um, back to work? Um, about to, okay. yeah, in, in a few weeks. So, yeah. and people will find this as challenging. So how are you, have you got a support base that's able to care for Hudson whilst you're away? He'll be going to daycare. Cool. Yeah. Um, and how are you going to feel about that? I'm very sad. Yeah. <laughs> I remember two weeks ago calling up to confirm the days and I just started silently crying when yeah. I was talking to the childcare. It's tough. But I'm so looking forward to working. I think yeah. getting a little part of me back and I've been off work for nearly nine months and yeah. I'm just, it, he'll love it. And he's. I think it's so good socially for them. For him anyway, he's a social bub, so yeah. he'll love it. He won't even know I'm gone. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I think it'll be challenging for yeah. him too. <laughs> Look, I'm I'm keeping trying to keep <laughs> boys positive. for some odd reason really love their mums. Oh, yeah, well, I work in aged care, and yeah. it's always the sons that yeah. <laughs> come to visit their mums. Really, is always. It? Yeah, oh, I would have thought it was the other way around. That's that's why it's good to have boys. <laughs> really, yeah. do you think that's true? Yeah, I must I must see if that's. <laughs> I would have thought that. I would have thought the daughters would have. No, no. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so got their own families. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, mummy's boys. I guess I don't yeah, know. Maybe. <laughs> so 
there's going to be a lot of people, and I hope there's a lot of people listening to these podcasts sort of either embarking on their own pregnancy journey or alternatively leading up to their own childbirth. Is there one bit of advice or several bits of advice that you'd like to impart on the other women who are about to either become pregnant or alternatively have a baby that now with the 2020 vision of being able to look back, you'd like to, to give them? Uh, I think don't Google would be one, (laughs) which is easy. (laughs) Which is quite easy, yeah, exactly. I guess don't get caught up in your research because, you know, I I researched till the cows come home, but it didn't change the outcome and it didn't, it really didn't have an impact on how my birth and, you know, the early stages of having Hudson or Huddy at home happened, you know, it was going to happen that way, whether or not I looked it up on Google. Yeah. Uh, But I think the biggest thing for me would be to just, Go, go with the flow and, you know, these babies, are they're not robots and yeah. the labour's not uh, pre-planned, you know, as much as you might want it to be. Yeah. It's really nice to be able to have flexibility and control over of course over what you're going to do. And I think, you know what, Google, if there's one thing that I say to people about Google, I think Google does give you a foundation to talk about stuff with mm. your healthcare giver, whether it be a GP, midwife or alternatively your obstetrician. In, in so much as it allows you to sort of maybe ask a question, I don't think you should believe the answer, but just to see if, you're, if your question's a valid question. Um, but that you should, you, I think you should, and particularly if you've got a private obstetrician or a private midwife, that you should trust their you know, level of expertise because most of us have been doing this for several years um, and we'll have seen countless of births. You know, your obstetrician, who I know well, and, you know, myself, we deliver over 250, 300 babies a year, and it's a hell of a lot of different birthing experiences we get to have, Um, and we get to see that, and we get to apply that knowledge and that knowledge bank to each individual um, labour so that, you know, I always, and I'll probably say this throughout the whole of this podcast series, but every woman's birthing experience is unique to her, and she shouldn't be judged for that birthing experience, and so some women will come out of listening to these podcasts and go, oh, God, having a big baby, four kilos, oh, my God, epidural, needing a vacuum, I want to have an elective Caesar. Well, that's a valid that's a valid decision. And if you think about it and you, you, know, you ask your caregiver about all the risks and benefits of such, then that's a, you know, your choice. Yeah? Equally so, you might turn around and say, wow, power to you and I'm going to do it as well. Awesome. And I think that's probably the, the most, I think is the most important thing is use a lot of the information that you do gain from this series, from Googling to sort of give you a foundation to allow a discussion with someone that you trust who's going to care for you. Yeah. What about during, during I mean, that's obviously during the whole pregnancy bit. What, what about during the, uh, you know, during childhood, during this mm. toddlering stage? Yeah, well, we're getting closer to one-year-old. Um, yeah. It's just watching... Him learn is just like nothing else. Being a, being a parent, I think nothing prepares you for, for I guess, the emotions that come with being a parent. Yeah. You know? Have you had some sad times? Yeah. Well, Huddy uh, has had some medical stuff go on yeah. early on um, and we've had to be at the Royal Children's a lot yeah. early on uh, with an autoimmune condition. But, you know, watching their resilience and how strong they are and babies are so robust, like, yeah. you know, you can't really can't break them unless, you know, yeah. you, you drop them. But <laughs> you, One of the, one of the other are. things I love about kids, and I see all the time here when I've got my own patients with their little ones, is how friendly they are. Mm. You know, we'll sit, in, we'll sit on a tram or a train or a bus or at a restaurant 
and there'll be a group of people around. We'll never speak to them and we'll be in a waiting room full of other other pregnant women and no one will talk to one another. And yet the two little kids will mm. start making friends. And it's only by virtue of the fact that the toddlers are chatting to one another or playing games that then the parents engage as yeah. well. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, I've found that too. Just yeah. Yeah, being out in social, like at a cafe, you'll see the yeah. babies looking and going for the same thing and, yeah, you just yeah. end up talking to other parents. Yeah. The other day my daughter, who's, as I said, a one and a bit, she just took fascination with this girl who was probably around about seven who was wearing a, a a necklace that was sort of flashing lights. And it was only by virtue of the fact that she saw that that um, little girl that then I turned around and, and saw that the person there next next to me was a nurse I used to work at the Alfred with. Oh, so it's just amazing funny, how, yeah. how exactly just, you know, just the little one actually engaged mm. and it all worked around. Well, Carly, thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story. Um, I think, you know, we're quite, as I said before, as obstetricians and healthcare professionals, quite privileged to be involved in the whole birthing experience. But I think I feel equally privileged to speak to you today about your birthing experience and hopefully uh, give some of our listeners a you know, good understanding of, of you know, the whole pregnancy journey and uh, how that applies to them. Um, I found it exceptionally valuable and enjoyable. Um, you can continue to listen to episodes of Bump, Birth and Beyond every fortnight on a Thursday. Um, and certainly, please you know, feel free to, to um, post any comments or uh, alternatively give us any suggestions for future updates. Make sure you keep up to date with me and uh, be first to hear of any new episodes by following um, myself at uh, Dr. Joseph Scroy through Instagram and also having a look at uh, Tiny Hearts Education on their Instagram and Facebook page. Once again, Carly, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 